Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. Ali H. Al-Hori, an award-winning applied linguist from Saudi Arabia. Dr. Ali H. Al-Hori, welcome back to Lost in Citations. Hello, and thank you for having me again. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I think this is your fifth appearance, so it's almost so becoming the Ali show. Yeah, so I'm happy to be back, 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 back. That's right. Yeah. Uh, do you like? Did we talk about that? Do you like baseball? That's where that that reference came from last time. The uh, no, no, I'm not aware of it. What what's the story behind it? So it's the in the All Star game for Major League Baseball, they have something called the Home Run Derby, where you're just essentially getting these easy pitches, and then the best players are just slamming them out of the ballpark home runs. And so the contest is who can hit the, the most home runs. And so these these players are hitting you know, 20, 30 home runs during this contest. And of course, a normal home run is a big deal. So if you're at a, a normal baseball game, especially in the playoffs, and someone hits a home run, the announcer is going to say, back, 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 back. It's a home run, right? Like that, right? But yeah. I don't, about 10 years ago, there's this bombastic announcer named Chris Berman, and he was announcing the home run derby. And so again, like I said, there's home runs being hit all the time. That's the point of it, right? And every single time he was doing this huge announcement, back, 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 back. It's a home run. So I don't know. For people that, that knew Chris Berman, they might, they might catch that reference. But it's really just a shout out to a home run call in Major League Baseball. Okay. I don't know. Do you have the same thing with cricket? I don't know. Cricket's cricket's maybe a bigger deal in uh, the Middle East. I'm not sure. In some parts of Asia, but not particularly in the Middle East. Oh, okay. I saw that you went and watched a beach volleyball tournament on your social media. Yeah, it's a local thing. You know, know, it's it's not really a big tournament or anything like that. That was kind of new. I've I've never seen you... Uh, out and about outside of an academic conference before you should post you should post more of that content <laughs> actually i was on a business trip for um a meeting actually so so you know i happened to to be invited to join that you know sports activity that's cool all right so we're going to talk about a few things today but the the episode will center around this academic publication called a community sourced glossary of open scholarship terms uh, with 112 authors including yourself and this was published in nature human behavior last year last year in in february so uh this is something you've been kind of crusading for i think we talked about open open sourcing uh last episode and I'm excited to talk to you about this article and a couple of the implications. But maybe let's start with some AI talk because I, I know we, we were talking about that last time. And I guess the big news in the world is Chat GPT, right? Chat GTP yeah. or G? I, I get them. Is it GDP or GPT? It's Chat GPT, which stands for uh, uh, Chat uh, Generative Pre-trained Transformer. Oh. It's now ChatGPT 3.5, okay. and ChatGPT 4 is planned to be announced maybe in the next few months or something, which is going 
good to be more powerful than this one also. Now, I was at a recent conference and we were kind of talking about this a little bit. And then another guy brought up this whole Bing update. Are you are you up with that as well? Yeah. The news with Bing. Can you can you explain that to me because it's not available right now, right? There was there was a beta version, but it's it's not really open to the public like Chat GPT is, right? Well, it's no, no. Actually, the original thing is if you want to access Chat GPT, you go to open AI website. Now right. there are plans to in- integrate ChatGPT into the Bing search function okay. so that when you search, you will also simultaneously on a site tab get, you know, the answer to your query from ChatGPT, but this is still still in beta version. Maybe at some point in the future it will become, you know, available to everybody. Have you been using it? Yeah, sure. You know, the, the ChatGPT one on, on OpenAI. Yeah. So, all right, well, walk me through your experience and I can kind of tell you some of the some of the things that I've been using it for as well. It's, it's very good for many people. And it's just, you know, it's a high level artificial intelligence system that can, you know, just if you input the right command, it will instantly give you the answer whether you are asking for specific information whether you are asking it to write a letter to your boss saying that you are sick for example it will give you a nice well-written letter you don't have to write the letter yourself you can just edit a few things putting the guy's name or or something or fix a few things so it's it's a game changer so far i've i've been using it a bit for technical things so, for example, how do you how do you do the statistical analysis in the program R, and it'll give you the code for it, or how do you do this in Excel, which which is pretty cool. Um, yeah. I I haven't used it so much for for other things. There was actually a few other websites. I I someone there there's a there's a friend of the show and a friend of mine named Simon Humphreys. He introduced me to a few. AI websites that are specific specific for academia. So I've been using those more for for research things. I don't I only look at I I can kind of see why ChatGPT is better for like a Bing. Like for Google. It's almost it's going to replace Google, right? Yeah, I I mean, you know, it's probably going to dethrone Google at some point if Google doesn't catch up. Google has their own barred system but still not as good as chat gpt and you know when you go to google you input whatever query you have and then you have a bunch of websites that you have to go through one by one to find the answer to your query but with chat gpt you just get the instant answer like this so why would you go and search website you know the thing is you know your getaway your, sorry, your gateway to the internet is Google. You know, Very few people would go to the URL section and write www. and put input you know, their website and go to it directly. You just Google it, mm. right? Whatever it is you want to know, you know the, even if you want to know whether your internet connection is working or, or not, many people would just Google, you know, in, you know, open Google and just see if it opens or not. ChatGPT is probably going to replace Google as our gateway to the internet. 
I heard it. Google I heard it has over a hundred million users already. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is a record in in you know in history. Um, let me just give you a couple of websites I've been using. Uh, that's well, Simon Humphreys recommended. Uh, one is called Lit Maps. It is pretty cool. So you 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 can type in any paper or like a DOI. And it essentially makes this literature map of where that paper fits in in the history of papers that are similar to it, where it kind of connected to a paper in the past, where it connects, you know, how, how it maybe veers off in a, in, a, in a direction. And it gives you this visual look at how your paper fits into history or a paper that you're looking, you're, you're researching how that paper fits into history. And I found a few papers in my research uh, through, that, through that website. Um, another one is called illicit.org. That's another really cool one where you can just type in any question. You just ask any any question that you want and it'll make this sort of simple abstract. It, it'll, But I don't really look at it for the, the abstract necessarily, but I look at for the articles that it pull up. And I think it's a really power powerful search engine. So if you haven't heard of those, litmaps and illicit.org, those are really cool. I, f- I found those better for research than chat GPT. So I, I as, like personally, I think chat GPT is really useful. Um, but I was hearing all these things like, oh, it's going to be a game changer for research and these things. I, I haven't noticed that as much. Have you? Well, you know, remember chat GPT is now 3.5 and it's going to improve exponentially in the near future. Mm. So, you know, Brace yourself. Are you worried about it as a teacher for cheating? I mean, I, I heard uh, some, some, well, not here. I saw some debate on Twitter about this with some people that I respect. And it would be good to have an AI system to check for cheating. Um, it would be nice if the, if, uh, you know, chat GPT could provide that for teachers as sort of, you know, well, I'm sure like when you submitted your master's or your PhD, you had to, you had to submit through Turnitin, right? Um, is that something that we're all going to have to, we're going to have to figure it out. Right. I mean, especially, I don't know how many students you have, if they're writing these essays, we're going to need some sort of system to check. Yeah. You know, there are pedagogical benefits to using chat GPT for education, especially if we find ways to integrate it into the system. There are also problems that it creates, includes, you know, cheating and plagiarism and other things. But perhaps at some point in the future, using chat GPT like systems might actually become the norm mm. and we have to live with it. If you can, with one single command, you know, generate an extended essay, who would bother to write a first draft then? Mm, Everybody would say, you know, why bother? You have this. Instead of being writers, why don't we become editors? Mm. We get the first draft, read it and edit it. So it's just like handwriting now, you know, handwriting is becoming obsolete now you know very few especially in many you know in my country in some other countries you know official documents other things you don't have handwriting everything is computerized now so if somebody doesn't learn to handwrite it might not be a big problem to live in this 
in this world. You know, you, computer skills are more important, definitely. You know, if you don't have computer skills, this is a problem. So maybe at some point we might become editors. That's kind of that's kind of scary though, because you need to be able to produce your own thoughts to write. Yes, and that's what is called command in our prompt engineering. Hmm. How you give the engine or the machine the right prompt to give you what you need. You have to be specific, otherwise the response would be vague and not exactly what you want. And I can imagine a college level course called, you know, prompt engineering, hmm. teaching students how to give, you know, these chatbots the correct or the appropriate command to get what they want. Yeah, I, I don't know how I feel about it because I, I kind of I kind of agree with you in some ways, but I think it's never gonna be like that for me. I, I'm just too used to to making a first draft on my own. And I could be wrong. I mean maybe in twenty years it's just it's it's so much better. But I just I don't know, it's something about it I don't like to give to just give it over completely to yeah, the machine. You know, in, I don't in, like it. In twenty years' time, the next generation will say, Yeah, that grumpy old Jonathan used to say this, but you know, we have the new generation now, you know. Yeah, but th- this is a big this is a big difference though, because what you're saying is you're saying we're moving from it to be a tool. I mean, because yeah, these conversations have come up in the past. I remember in the eighties with the, the TI calculators. I think there was a debate about that, putting these graphing calculators in, in the schools. There's, there was the debate about putting the computers in the schools. Um, but what you're saying is a little bit different. You're saying we're not using this as a tool. I mean, I mean, I guess you are if you're talking about prompt engineering. But you really are letting the computer doing a lot of work for you, which maybe is – I don't know. I don't know. It, it, seems, it's, it's, it, seems strange, it seems strange to me. I mean ethically and as sort of a – like for my daughter, like raising a, a child, right? I still want her to produce her own thoughts. And I think if you just get used to it too much, I mean, maybe I'm a hypocrite, right? Because I use Google all the time. I use Google Maps. I do all this stuff, right? I'm not looking at physical maps anymore. So maybe I've lost that skill. I don't know. It's a, it's an interesting debate. Yeah. You know, different generations will have different conceptions of, you know, what my thoughts will be and to what extent I rely on technology to form my own thoughts and thinking. Do you think it'll eventually be connected to the human brain? Well, Elon Musk is trying to do so and he has yeah. been advocating this. So, you know, now we'll wait and see. Because that's, I think that's going to be the big event in human history right because it's going to be whether you're going to link it up link up to the system if, if that system's available or not because what if it works and the people that link up they're going to be they're going to have so much more power than the people that don't but then the people that link up are going to be risking this sort of straight like that's a big risk i think linking your physical brain to some sort of computer system I mean that I don't know, man. I don't know if I'd be I don't know if I'd be be ready to cross that Rubicon. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But then you would be, I mean, you would the person that had it would would have infinite knowledge, though. Right. Uh, yeah, you you would have access to the you know, the the Google equivalent. You know, today's Google equivalent. Right. Um, all right. Any more AI talk? Should we sw- should we switch gears or anything more to say on that? Yeah, let's start with today's episode. All right. So 
All right. So why why did you decide on on this this particular episode? Um, is it more the idea of the, the big team science, or is it you're still on the the open sourced crusade, or is it it's a combination of both? So, um, you know, when when we talk about big team science, there are actually two approaches to this. Let's call one the horizontal approach and the other one the vertical approach. Okay. For the horizontal approach, you have different teams collecting or analyzing data and pooling them into one paper at the end. And this is what happens with meta-analyses. With meta-analyses means you get a collection of papers on the same topic. You meta-analyze their results. So it's, it's a kind of secondary analysis to come up with a final conclusion of sorts. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem with this is that meta-analysis is usually kind of ad hoc and afterthought reporting procedures are not clear and the guidelines are not clear did they you know sometimes some important aspects are not fully reported you know it's just messy because you are at the mercy of what you find and what is reported explicitly in the literature so with with the horizontal approach to big team science Different people or teams collect data using a standard procedure that they agree agree upon previously, pull their results, and then come up with the conclusion. And the the benefit of this is that you can have high power. Power means you have a large enough sample to to detect an effect if there is an effect. Mm -hmm. And you can systematically vary conditions to see whether, you know, certain conditions will have an effect on the results. Now, the vertical approach, which is the second one, is pooling expertise. So if you want to build a, a skyscraper, for example, you can imagine how many people will have to work on that project. Hmm. And these people will have different types of expertise, builders, engineers, electricians, plumbers, um, different things, people bringing this type of material, people bringing that type of material. Now, why don't we apply this to research? So people will do this. We will get experts to do, for example, the theoretical part of the paper, high level will get people to collect data, high-level collecting data, because it's not easy to collect representative samples of a country or different countries, for example. You have to do this random sampling of different places, how to do, you know, different procedures to be actually representative. And then people will analyze these results, this usually big data that you get at the end, and so on and so on. So if you are working alone, you will need to be an expert in all these stages. Mm. And if you have a problem in one of these stages only, this will be a big limitation to your research project. So, you know, currently, you know, 
in many fields, they are moving toward this collaboration approach. You know, why do you have to keep up to date with every single statistical advance when you, you know, and keep abreast with every single theoretical advance in your field and with this and with that. So why don't we collaborate with different people who have different expertise, make it more efficient? Mm, I like that. I mean, that's, um, that topic is, has been brought up on the previous show when you, when we were talking about, you know, psychologists doing applied linguistics research or applied linguistics people doing psych psychological research. I mean, that's something that you've been sort of championing for a long time, this idea of interdisciplinary research. So how did you get approached by this team, this big team? So this team is part of what's called FORT, which stands for Framework for Open and Reproducible Research Teaching. Mm -hmm. And this project, the purpose of this project, project was to create a glossary or a dictionary of open uh, terminology related to open science. And this terminology is growing by the day. You hear things like p-hacking, mm. harking, carking, parking, <laughs> and other things, new things. And these are genuine terms that are, you know, that we list and explain in the paper. So for, you know, just briefly, p-hacking means, you know, you want to get something significant at 0.05, for example. There are techniques that you use in order to maximize your chance of getting it significant, even if, you know, you shouldn't get it significant. Mm. There is harking, which stands for hypothesizing after the results ah, are known. Right. You know? There is carking, which is critiquing after the results are known. And, you know, normally, you know, if you want to critique something, you should critique it based on methodology. Is this the way you should do it or not? But if you have, if you change your critique based on the results and then criticize the methodology, it shouldn't be like this, right? You know, you should first decide whether this methodology is okay or not, and then we accept the results. If you still have problems, then you propose a different methodology. That's how it continues. There is parking, parking pre-registering after the results are known. Yeah, pre-registration should be pre-registration happens before. Then some people might, you know, pre-register afterwards. So yeah, you, you get these things and you learn a lot from these things because, you know, sometimes people are doing something, but it doesn't have a label. So once you have a label on it and explain whether, you know, it's a good thing to do or not a good thing to do, then people will understand this. This will raise awareness. So as another example, the first entry in this glossary is abstract bias. Hmm. And this means usually when people write the, the abstract of their papers, they are under pressure to impress the editor and the reviewers highlighting why, why their paper is significant enough for the journal to accept it, which is kind of okay. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, in order to impress the editor and the reviewers, they highlight, you know, what they consider interesting, which are usually the significant results. In the body of the manuscript, they might still fully and transparently report 
everything, not hide anything under the rug, especially non-significant results, but they may not report it in the abstract itself. Mm. Now, why is this a problem? It's a problem because when you do a meta-analysis or a systematic review, search is typically limited to the title, the abstract, and the keywords, not the full paper, because you can't do this, you know, just get too much, um, too many results. So if you do not report that a specific condition was non-significant, if you don't, if you do not report it in the abstract, then meta-analysts and systematic reviewers will not catch it. And on the other hand, if other people do get that specific condition significant, they will report it in their abstracts and you will catch it there. So you will say every time it's reported, it is significant, mm. right? This leads to bias. Mm. So yeah, this also creates awareness that the abstract should represent, you know, all important results. Important doesn't mean significant. You know, even if it is something not significant, it should be reported, reported in the abstract if it is related to the main theme of the paper. Well, I mean, this is what we kind of talked about before. I, in my opinion, the thing that would solve all of these issues is mandatory pre-registration. Because I was I was reviewing a paper a couple months ago, and it's kind of similar, it's kind of similar to what you're saying. When I read the abstract, I, wow! I said this is going to be this is going to be great. This is going to be it's very clear. It's very easy to read. I see I see exactly what they wanted to do. But then I started to read the paper, and I could say say wait a second, your aims aren't matching, but it's in the abstract. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's like the, it's not it's not the same. And I kind of I made that comment. I said. It's very it's very misleading what the aims were. Can you please clarify your aims? And if your aims are actually this, then you need to go back and change this. And the, and and after listening to you just now, that's probably what happened. The, the the abstract was written in a certain way to make it look sort of clean and easy to read, but it was misleading. Yeah. Right. You know, we we also work on another you know, big project. It has been now accepted for publication. It's the title was multidimensional signals and analytic flexibility, estimating degrees of freedom in human speech analyses. And briefly, the question that um, this paper we were addressing in this paper was, was, if you say, you know, pass me the blue banana. That's it's a typical sentence, nothing unusual about it. But if the banana happened to be blue, for example, are you going to say, pass me the blue banana with a higher pitch on blue because it's unusual? Or are you going, you know, pronounce it just like you pronounce a blue banana? Now, this, this is a simple question. And in that paper, the task was to to answer this question. It, does the pitch change when the adjective noun combination is atypical? Mm-hmm. So uh, and what happened in this team was, you know, some researchers collected data from people speaking, you know, uh, saying these sentences with typical and atypical word combinations. And our task was to analyze this data and answer that question. Until now, this might sound simple, but the actual process 
it's very long. First, you have the raw recordings. You have to input them into a special specialized software. And then you have to segment this in order to decide on these combinations of interest. And then you have to me- measure the latency in order to decide on the pitch level and then get this latency and, and move to the next step, which is the statistical analysis. You have to decide on how to analyze this, what statistical procedure you do, how to handle outliers, how to normalize things, how to do this and that. Then finally analyze it and answer the question. So in this project, there were almost 50 teams analyzing the same data set independently. And the purpose was to see whether in how many people will come up with the same answer and mm. the same analysis. Mm. Okay. And it was there a significant variability, a lot of variability in the because of the different process steps and the long process that you have to go through. So the, this is a problem. If there is no, you know, you get the same data set. If you think about it, this is the same data set. If you give it one team, they will come up with a different answer. If you give it to team two, they will come up with a different answer. If you give it to team three, they will come up with a third different answer. You know, it's a problem. And one way to address this problem, at least, is to have transparency. I came up with this conclusion after following these steps. One, two, three, four, five. Mm. So people know that, okay, this conclusion came through this route. But if people follow a different route, they might come up with a different conclusion. All right, let's let's head back to the the big team science. Um, now, when did you when did you get approached for this project? And maybe that can also lead into the next question: How how common is this in our yeah, field? Okay, I guess so. Th- this project, I think it was in two thousand nineteen, and the original, you know, two years before that, um, uh, a psychologist called Christopher. Chartier is, I think, is this is how you pronounce it? I'm maybe. Not sure. Yeah, not sure. maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So um, there is a, a project uh, in, I think, in Geneva called CERN, C E R N, which is the European Organization for Nuclear Research. And it's not just researchers collaborating, it's countries collaborating and funding this project. And it's a very, very big project. They have the largest particle physics lab in the world. They are the ones who actually, or, you know, the internet came from that project. Mm. You see how big it is. The Higgs boson came from that project. So this guy, Christopher Chartier, was, you know, riding his bike one morning in 2017. And he said, why don't we have a CERN for psychological science? You know, why don't we follow the example of, you know, the hard sciences and have our own large team research? So he wrote, he wrote a, blog bo- a, a blog post with this title, Building a CERN for Psychological Research hmm. in 2017. And this generated a lot, of, a lot of interest and a lot of reaction on social media. 
So they created an organization, a non-profit organization called Psychological Science Accelerator. And you can find them, you know, they have a website. They have like over 2,000 members now from, I think, 70 to 80 countries. And they do these large-scale projects and everybody can join who is interested. Yeah, so these are precursors to this project. Then the fourth came, and they have a Slack channel. Uh, Slack, you know, it's becoming more and more popular now, though, you know, different technologies might come up in the future. So they have their own Slack channel. Uh, they announce projects. And one of them was this glossary project. And after it was published, they invited others to translate it into different languages. So we are now in the process of translating it into Arabic. Mm. I'm aware that some other languages are in the works also, including Chinese and some other European languages. So, yeah, fun stuff. Well, um, does this big team research have an impact on the field? Okay, that, that's an interesting question because the answer is kind of complex. In 2019, there was this paper published. Um, uh, the title was Large Teams Develop and Small Teams Disrupt Science and Technology. Hmm. So uh, they, their research showed that um, the dynamics of small teams and large teams are different. Mm. Just like mega companies like Google and other things. So why is Google behind in, in ChatGPT technology, for example? Why is it OpenAI that, you know, you know, was the first? In fact, the transformer that is the essence of ChatGPT came from Google, actually. Mm. The reason why, you know, Google is behind is that considering that it's a mega corporation, they have their image to protect. They have to be careful. They have to tread carefully. A smaller company like OpenAI can take more risks. Okay. So they found similar dynamics when they compared the research productivity of large teams and small teams. So... With large teams, it's kind of hard to be innovative, to take risks, because so many people are involved and the, the logistics behind organizing these teams is difficult. But with smaller teams, it's easy to disrupt science and come up and take risks. And, you know, small teams usually means, you know, 10 people or less. Mm. That's, you know, convention. And relatedly, there is a paper published in Nature just last month, I think, called Papers and Patents Are Becoming Less Disruptive Over Time. Hmm. And in this paper, the authors analyzed you know, millions, you know, over 40 million papers in six, six decades and like 4 million patents. And they had this measure called the CD index, mm. which stands for the consolidation or destabilization index. 
Okay, so it's consolidation or disruption. And the intuition behind this is, you know, is intuitive and perhaps just like Litmap that you just mentioned. So they look at papers, they look at the citations of these papers, they look at, you know, who cite, whether people who cited this paper cited the papers it is based on or not also. So here is the intuition. In a, cons a consolidation paper, subsequent work cites it also, who cite, you know, subsequent work that cites it, mm -hmm. it's also most likely going to cite its predecessors. Right. In a disruptive paper, subsequent work that cites it is less, less likely to cite its predecessors because mm -hmm. it's something new now. Right. Okay. Now that doesn't mean that one is better than the other. So in you know, let's have an example. Let's say, for example, um, you write a paper and you say, so paper A found this, this, and that. Paper B found this, this, and that. Paper C found this, this, and that. Therefore, combining all these, here is an integrative framework built on these papers. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's an that a cons, that's a cons, consolidation approach. Now, people who cite your paper are more likely to also cite the other papers that it is built on, mm -hmm. right? Now, a disruption paper would say paper A found this and that, paper B found this and that, paper C found this and that. However, in contrast to all these, I'm going to present something different. Mm -hmm. Here is my framework. Okay. Now, if people take your paper and like your paper, they will start citing it, but not cite the other things. You know, it's, it was built on because it's contrary to them. You are kind of uh, contradicting them, presenting something different. Hmm. Okay, that's disruption. And again, we want consolidation and we want disruption. Both are okay. Both are useful to science. We sometimes we need this, sometimes we need that, depending on context. Now, in this paper, they found that there is a consistent decline in all fields they found in disruptive papers and patents, hmm. which is kind of, you know, for over six decades. Now, they said, well, maybe there are problems with citation and other things. They considered other possibilities, so they had, they had some other measures. They analyzed the language used in abstracts and titles, and they also found that there was a decline in the diversity of words used over time. Hmm. People are kind of using more and more similar language over time. Then they also measured combinatorial novelty, as they call it, which is um, a typical combination of words, not just as individual words they also found a decline in this, in the use of atypical combinations of words, hmm. which might also be an indication of being, you know, like, you know, like everybody, like, you know, being less disruptive. Hmm. Um, what, is, what is interesting was that they, when they looked at the sheer number of disruptive work, not the percentage, it was actually consistent over time, hmm. and what they call the conservation 
of abs the absolute number of disrupt disruptive work. So the output of research, the raw output of research is increasing year by year, but the amount of disruptive work is still consistent. It's not increasing with this increase, which is kind of interesting. You get the idea. Yeah, that, I mean, that kind of makes sense. I mean, again, this goes back to another conversation we've had about journals, right? So Yeah, uh, yeah, with, with journals now, um, you know, they try to interpret it. So one, uh, one, one interpretation was maybe with journals and papers, there is so much to read so that there might be more disruptive research, but because so much to read, it might get lost. Uh, one interpretation is the low-hanging fruit interpretation. There is less low-hanging fruit, which is kind of debatable considering this consistency. One interpretation is the increasing specialization of research. So now there are narrower and narrower domains. And so people don't read what other people in other domains are doing. So mm -hmm. they cite their own you know, people in their own domains, for example. Um, but still, other interpretations include, you know, the push for publish or perish. People are pushed to just publish quickly, quickly, quickly. And if you publish a lot and more frequently because of your institution, you don't really have the chance to, to you know, stop and think deeply about knowledge. You have to publish quickly, quickly. And, you know, nowadays, we don't hear of these stories that we used to hear about that scientist who sat in, in their lab for two or three years working on that project until they finally cracked it and published that paper that changed science. You know, if somebody does this now, they will be fired because, you know, where's your publications? Why didn't you publish? They, they can't wait. You know, deans don't wait these days. But there's... Another another factor, which I think we've talked about before, Quint Ogle Baldwin, he was on the podcast a few months back, and he was talking about when, when himself and Luke Fryer were kind of coming up and they were trying to publish in the motivation world, they kept on getting feedback from these these journals about certain things in their papers that they said, well, why are you trying to look at it this way? We already have an established framework. And they had to keep sort of fighting to say, okay, we, we accept that framework and I think that's fine, but there's other ways to think about it. So I think, especially when you're kind of coming up, it takes a little bit of courage or, I don't know, stubbornness in some ways to say, okay, well, I get it. All of these people are citing this framework, but I want to go in a different way. We're looking at this in a different way where maybe it's, it's also coming from the journals where they're saying they don't want to be a disruptive journal. Right, it can come from the top as well. This is the thing I was just referring to. If you want to be disruptive, there is always a risk that you may not succeed. Mm -hmm. Okay, you have to take this risk. Now, because it's research, because there is collaboration, you are not working alone. You know, you journals are like partners with you. If your paper fail, if your paper fails, then the paper, the journal fails. Right, it won't get citations. There is all this this race for impact factors, which is driven by citation dynamics. And so yes, so journals, 
what you're saying correlates to other topics as well. I was just listening to a podcast about media. They were talking about the same thing. So, for example, um, I don't know, in America, big pop culture uh, event is the Super Bowl. And this year, for the first time in a long time, there weren't these superstar announcers, right? And you might say, well, Jonathan, who cares about the announcers? Well, part of pop culture is these sort of announcers. It gives this gravitas to the event. And so what, what the, the podcast, the sports podcast people were talking about is this idea that the big corporations don't really want to take a risk and do something new. So the way the conversation came is that the, the, corp, the, the channel that ran the Super Bowl this year kind of got a lot of criticism that they didn't have these gravitas announcers. And then other people might say, oh, well, actually, these announcers are really good. They're just not famous. So the conversation also led to like movies, right? So if you have this huge budget movie, you're going to try to get a star. Now, you could, you could take a risk and you could choose a really good actor who's not famous and it could, they, you could nail it, right? But I guess the, the point of that conversation was when it's high stakes, it's better for a big corporation to not make, to not take a risk, and fail. There's more, there's more risk. So that's why a lot of these bigger corporations, when the money's, when, when there's a lot of money at stake, they're going to play it conservative. Um, and that's, again, it goes back to your point of like the smaller, then now go back to like a movie, like a, an, an independent movie uh, company can take more risks. And then maybe it gets widespread success. Maybe it doesn't, but those big companies, they can't afford to lose a lot of money on a, like a $300 million movie. They're going to put the star actor in there. Um, or else they're all going to lose their job, right? That's the other thing. Like people in top levels of these companies, they don't want to lose their job. So if you're the CEO of a company and you make this sort of risky decision where, okay, the public knows knows this, the public is aware of this, but it's like, wait a second, this is better. We should do it this way. Now, if you succeed and you and you took that risk and then, you, yeah, you're going to be great for a long time, but the the odds are if it doesn't work out, you're going to get fired, so it's there, there's almost a motivation to be conservative the more powerful you get. Does that make sense? So, yeah. So let's link this back to academia and specifically with the grants, for example. If you submit a grant proposal to a big um, granting agency, they have, they have specific criteria before they give you this grant. And some of these criteria include looking at your CV, mm. what publications you have made. Are you a superstar? Going back to the- Can we trust this person now. with the money? Can yeah. we trust this person or have not? Have they managed money this, before? Yes. And is this proposal in line with current knowledge and publications or yeah. is it going in a different direction? So in a way, also grant agencies- help keep the status quo yeah and you know interestingly you know grants are usually granted for specific projects not researchers right they say you know we what are you working on this project then okay we will give you grants for this project so how about we trust the researcher okay we will give you this grant do something creative just figure out something no, you cannot do this. You know, what project you are working on? Do we like this project? Then we give you the money. Actually, there's a researcher I know, I won't say the name, uh, whether it's a male or female, but there's a researcher I know that applied to a big grant two years in a row. Uh, 
the first year, they did not get the grant, but the comments were pretty good. So they submitted the exact same grant the second year, and all they did is they invited someone more prestigious to join the team. So essentially, the grant application was exactly the same, but they added someone with more gravitas, and it went through. Yeah, yeah. This is this is this is a big problem, you know. Uh, you know, you should look at what is being said, not who said it. You know, as the saying goes. Mm, interesting. Um, all right. So, I think we I think we hit all the questions, didn't we? I mean, what's what... um, there is one thing about measuring impact. Okay. You know, this is related to you know um, how to measure impact and you know before the potential impact before the project is being it's the project before it is conducted and afterwards after it is published now big team research has its own you know potential drawbacks you know we have to admit this if you have a project with 50 or 60 people you know it's kind of hard to determine the amount of contribution each person has done you know you can have this credit system but still you know if somebody has worked on a small part, will this person will will disqualify this person for tenure or for promotion for mm. other things? So it's kind of generally it's looked down upon. If you are not the lead author, then there are some issues here. And also, you know, generally speaking, as we were just talking, impact. In academia, you know, it's measured by citations, you know, this full stop. Mm -hmm. It's citations, either make it or break it. And citations actually is hackable and manipulable. Now, there is a new paper published like around one month ago by McDonald. The title was The Gaming of Citation and authorship in academic in academic journals and it's it's just a brazen paper just you know i read a lot of a lot of papers on this topic but this guy is just doesn't mince words it's just <laughs> nice. you know it's just so straightforward and i wouldn't be surprised if if the corporations that he mentions in this paper you know, sue him and sue the journal and retract the paper. Oh, wow. <laughs> Go and read it now before it's retracted. What's the name again? The Gaming? The, the Gaming of Citation and Authorship in Academic Journals, A Warning from Medicine. Oh, jeez. Is it, is it, it from what you're talking about, people are uh, a part of these big, these big teams or is that something else? Uh, yeah. Just before I answer that, the journal is Social Science Information. And it was published. It's still in press now. It published in 2023. Okay. And the idea of the paper is that um, how easy it is for a journal to, to follow certain strategies and techniques to increase its impact factor without oh, actually okay. improving the quality of the papers it is publishing. Oh, so, okay, got it. I was thinking so, more people are self-citing themselves or something. Yeah, that that's part of it, actually. That's called coercive citations. It's the journal when, you know, people might cite themselves. People might cite papers from that specific journal they are publishing 
they uh-huh. are trying to publish in. But the editors will sometimes indirectly coerce you to cite papers from that journal, the same journal you are submitting to, in order to increase their impact factor. And imagine yourself, you are, you know, you have been through two or three rounds of reviews, you are tired, you are finally about to have your paper accepted, and then you receive an email from the editor saying, you know, your paper is good, we are going to consider it for publication, but why don't you cite these two or three papers in your, you know, in your paper? And all these papers are from the same journal. Mm. For many people, will be too tired to argue. Just don't cite these damn three papers and just get the paper published. Mm. So, yeah, that's coercive citations. So, yeah, so journals can adopt different techniques to increase their impact factors, including, just as you said, publishing papers that involve big names. Because big names will attract readership, will attract citations. Now, if you are not a big name, but you publish the same quality, just as the example you just mentioned, you will kind of be discriminated against unfairly. So it's the same work, same quality, but that big author is not on the list of authors. The paper is rejected. So it's it's not fair. So mm. this also leads to some of the strategies that auth- that journal editors can adopt, include pub- not publishing replications, not publishing um, uh, non-significant results, for example, which leads to bias in the in publication bias. Uh, publishing editorials and commentaries and replies that cite their own papers. So, yeah, there are so many trips, tricks of the trade that editors can, can use, which, which can be called questionable editorial practices to inc- improve their impact factors. So it's very easy to hack, actually. Impact factors are not that sacred quality assurance stamp that people take it to be. It's mm. actually a very fragile figure. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. Now, even though even though the funny thing is that it's it looks accurate to three digits after the decimal point. How more accurate do you want it to be? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I it's funny because I guess it depends on your field, right? So the things that I'm reading or the things that I'm researching may be different than someone else, right? So I'm really focusing on on my the themes that I'm working on. And to be honest, maybe call me naive. I, I when I'm reading and doing research, I tend not to even consider where the what journal is in. And I, I've read a whole a whole lot of papers. Some of them are an impact journal, some of them are not. Um, but you can generally tell if if, if the writing is good or if, if if it's helpful. And there's a wide range. I found a wide range. I, I don't necessarily think that some of these journals the these articles that aren't in the impact factors aren't don't have value, so to speak, right? So yeah, I mean definitely. that's a, that's a different conversation, of course, but um, and that's really subjective. But I feel like you can you can you can read a good paper, and it's and then it's a it's like a brand, right? So it's not like I read a good paper and then look in the back and say, oh, this isn't Coca Cola, oh, this wasn't good. It's never like that for me. I don't know, but maybe other people look at it differently. I don't know. Yeah. 
um, it, it's, you know, academia is, you know, a social enterprise. A lot of factors go into the production and the assessment of impact that go and all this happens behind the scenes. It's not the objective reality that outsiders might think it is. Well, and the other thing that you, you kind of intimated this idea, like, let's say that you really wanted to get published in the modern language journal back in the day, or I, I, I don't know, is it still an impact? Is it still a really powerful journal? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not really, I'm not really sure. But the idea is what you would do is you would read the modern language journal every month obsessively, right? And you would be in that world. And so by the time you submitted to the modern language journal, you got the formatting down, you're citing it. Like it would almost be that it's the, re- the reverse of what you're saying, right? We got top down and we got bottom up, right? So the bottom up side from the, 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 the author would be, okay, well, I want to match this journal's format. I want to match this journal's vibe. I want to match everything. I'm, I'm definitely going to do that, right? And then, then you got the top side, which you mentioned, where the journal says, well, you need to make sure you cite these past couple uh, issues or else you're not really fitting inside of our journal's aims or themes or whatever. So it kind of makes sense that you could perpetuate this, this thing, uh, this powerful journal, right? You got to get in there to get your impact factor, to get your own name up. So, yeah, I don't know. It's right. an interesting topic. If, if these citations are genuine and you feel that the certain papers published in the Modern Language Journal are relevant to what you are talking about, then it's just perfectly normal to cite these, these papers. But if it is just citation stuffing and padding your paper to suck up to the editor, then that's a different story. Right. And then you and then you you get some of these arguments or discussions on, online where you have academics like yourself and I'm not I'm not saying you said this you, you might have where academics complain about that they're being res, re, misrepresented in these citations. Like sometimes someone will be cited and they'll say wait a second I I appreciate that you cited me but that's not really what I was saying. Yeah. <laughs> You know, this reminds me, actually, one of the findings in that nature paper, papers and patents are becoming less disruptive, they found that the amount of citations to the top 10 papers and patents increase over time. Mm, that makes sense. So pe- more and more and people are citing that, you know, if it's, a, if it's a top scholar or top researcher, they will be cited, you know. Sometimes they might not be relevant, but, you know... For many people, when they start the introduction, for example, of their motivation paper, they will say, Dornier said this, this, and that, and then start the paper, even though what comes afterwards has nothing to do with Dornier's work. Mm. It's just called ceremonial citations. And this happens, for example, in sociology. People cite Giddens, for example, in the introduction ceremonially, and then continue the paper on something completely irrelevant to what Giddens has done, for example. Um, all right. I think I think we hit everything. Uh, would you like to plug your... All right. So the last time we talked, you said you, you were going to do some interviews with the Motivation SIG. And you kind of you kind of said that you're, you, you spoke it into existence. Like you yeah, said it. Yeah, all right. <laughs> so literally, you have spoken this into, into existence. Congratulations. You got two in the books, right? 
Yeah, one with Tammy Gregerson and the the other one that we recorded just last night. So that would be, you know, by the time this podcast is published, it will be a few months later with Gary Barkheiser. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that I'm pronouncing his name correctly uh, from New Zealand, whose work on I teacher identity and identity in language learning and teaching. So maybe we can put those links on the on the website for people for people to check out because I know people love uh, like I told you I, th I think you're great at this I think you should have your own podcast or don't uh, keep <laughs> keep coming on this one yeah this is like if it, we're looking at this like a journal don't be a disruptor just keep coming on this one yeah. <laughs> don't start your own yeah a little bit of mixed signals I'm telling you there no please start your own but don't. <laughs> No, I think that's cool. Is that something you want to do, what, maybe four or five times a year? Or you haven't really thought about that? Just kind of whenever you get the the urge? Well, we are just starting now. And our plan is to have like, do it once every one or two months. And see how things go, whether we have the stamina to continue or not. What's it like being on the other side of the mic where you're the interviewer? Much easier, much easier. <laughs> Oh really? You, know, you just just throw the questions, and the interviewee will take care of the job. <laughs> All right, cool. I think I think it, I think it depends. Really? So you you think you think hundred percent it's easier? Uh, well, the thing is, if the the interview was face to face, it would be more convenient because. I don't know, especially with Zoom, if two people talk simultaneously, there will be some interference. Mm, okay. So I have to wait until the other person stops talking, then I talk. Even if I have something to to say or to interrupt or, or to add, I avoid doing that to avoid that interference. I see. Yeah, well, that that's great. Um, yeah, we'll put those links on the website, and we'll also put the link to this article, a community-sourced glossary of open scholarship terms. Of course, uh, Ali is is very active on social media, so you could you could find him on his Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn, YouTube. Um, you can also find him at the beach volleyball court on occasion. If you're lucky. And on my own personal website. Oh, your personal website. Yes, of course. Um, I think if people just Google Ali Al-Hori, yeah. uh, they'll, they'll find it all. Um, well, this was fun. Look, you didn't know you'd come on this podcast and talk about sports, did you? You had no idea that was going to yeah, happen. Yeah, no, I didn't know that. <laughs> so now you can go and talk to all your friends about the Super Bowl and how there was this big uh, – this big controversy yeah. that there was no star announcer. You should, you should, you should, you should talk about that at your next uh, faculty meeting. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we have to find a solution to it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, stay on the line real quick. Um, but yeah, Dr. Ali Alhori, thank you so much for coming back, 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 back on Lost in Citations. Thanks for having me again, again, and again. <laughs> if you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. 
probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.